Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure we are spiritually prepared to study the word, which means we're in fellowship and God the Holy Spirit is active in our life so that uh, we can uh, maximize our time for uh, spiritual uh, efficacy this evening. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer before I begin. Let's pray. Uh, Father, it's good to be able to come this evening to be refreshed by your word, to be strengthened by the teaching, by a focus upon you and being reminded of your, of your faithfulness and being reminded of all that you have provided for us as a result of your grace. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that we might be able to set aside the things that uh, easily distract us and get our mind onto things that have happened in the previous week or that are about to happen or ongoing problems that we can just focus upon you and God the Holy Spirit can use the uh, use what we're learning this evening to encourage us and strengthen us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans 4 for a little brief time before we get started this evening. Romans 4 is the chapter where Paul gives two examples from the Old Testament that support what he's been saying since the middle of chapter 2, which is that man cannot justify himself. It's impossible. He can't do it by being moral, and he can't do it by being uh, obedient to the law. And within Judaism at this time, the focus was on circumcision as the as the uh, indicator of one's spirituality, that if you were Jewish and circumcised, you were in. And yet Paul argues uh, against that in chapter 3, showing that that is not enough. And he explains it in terms of the doctrine in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, he gives uh, two illustrations. We've looked at both of them, the illustration from Abraham and the illustration from David. Now, in Genesis 15, 4 through 6, just to uh, remind you, Paul says, Behold, the word of the Lord, uh, he goes back to Genesis 15, and quoting from that passage in Romans uh, 4, 4, uh, 2 and 3, he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the Scripture say? And then he quotes from Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted or imputed or reckoned to him for righteousness. 
Now then we went back, in the last few weeks, we've been in Genesis 15, and last week, of course, I got already in between the finishing of my notes and the printing of my notes, the computer decided to quit working. It turned out I didn't have a hard drive crash. Some wire in there got disconnected, and they reconnected it, and everything's pretty much back to normal. So that was, uh, that was just a test to see how well I would respond. I'm not sure how I passed. Tonight's about testing, though, so it fits. Uh, in Genesis 15:4, just to remind you of the key passage, as God has promised to Abraham that the blessing that he has promised the promise of descendants that would be uh, more numerable than the stars of the sky or the sands of the seashore, that this would be, uh, that this would come not through uh, Eliezer, Abraham's servant, but it would come through Abraham himself. And so in 15.4, he told Abraham, this one shall not be your heir, but that is referring to Eliezer, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look, now toward heaven, count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Now, this is a promise, but this is not the promise that Abraham exercises faith on in verse 6. As I pointed out, verse 6 says, he believed in the Lord and he, that is the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. And it should actually be translated, as I've got it in the second form up there, he believed in the Lord and he accounted it, and then there's an appositional phrase, that is, he accounted it or, or imputed it, that is, righteousness, to him. And the key word here is the word for believe, aman, which means to trust in God, but it has that sense of complete reliance upon God. It, it ha- brings in the nuances of stability and certainty, and that's p- part of the uh, Hebrew word for uh, Amon. And as I pointed out before, almost every time this word is used, it is used in when someone is responding to something that someone else, usually God, is saying, as opposed to the other primary word for faith, which is batach, which is, which is usually used to describe when someone is trusting God. Uh, Aman is used when someone is responding to a promise or a statement by God and believing him at that, at that point. Now, Genesis 15.7 indicates that, and there's a paragraph break there in verse 7, then he that is God said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees uh, to give you uh, this land to inherit it. And what we see here is that the time in which Abraham was justified was really this time when he was still in Ur of the Chaldees. I pointed out that the grammar of Genesis 15.6 shifts to a perfect tense verb from the standard narrative flow of imperfect tenses. And so the statement, he believed God or he believed in the Lord, is completely out of sync with the flow of the story. And, and so 15.6 should be understood as a parenthesis because what, what Moses is doing is reminding us as the reader, the one who's watching the narrative, it's like the narrator steps in at this point and says, now remember, Abraham had already believed in the Lord and it was at that time imputed 
to him, it righteousness was imputed to him at that time. And then the next verse, of course, refers to that time, which is in Ur of the Chaldees. So what I want to look at tonight is another question, and that is Abraham's tests of faith. Are they the cause or the result of justification? Are they the cause or the result of justification? Now, we'll see why that's important in just, just a minute. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is a doctrine that was lost or obscured for much of the history of Christianity. By the end of the 3rd or 4th century at the latest, the doctrine of justification by faith alone began to be obscured by the introduction of sacramentalism within what later became known as Roman Catholic theology. The idea that by doing things, by participating in these various sacraments, that Christians gained grace from God. That did not become really established in in a doctrinal sense until well into the Middle Ages, but the, uh, the idea, the doctrine that we're justified by simply believing God and nothing else, that a person doesn't have to reform his life, he doesn't have to uh, become moral, he doesn't have to become, quote, spiritual uh, in order to be justified before God, has always been under attack. Grace is never understood. P- human beings just don't want to believe that God is going to give them something for free. We just, we, we, something about it just goes against it. And so throughout most of the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church uh, taught that justification wasn't something that happened once in a moment of time when a person trusted in Jesus as Savior, but it was something that happened over a long period of the individual's life so that you never really knew if you were justified because you didn't know if you'd received enough grace. And you receive grace by participating in the Mass, participating in various other other sacraments, and each time you did, uh, you got a little more grace. It sort of doled out to you uh, a little bit at a time, and it was a process. And so you only knew if you were justified or on the right path by works, by looking at somebody's life, by looking at how moral or how good or how religious uh, somebody was. And we often hear how that gets into even uh, the vocabulary of people who are uh, grace-oriented because you often will catch yourself looking at somebody and say, you know, I just don't think they could be saved. Well, why? Why? Because they don't live like they're saved. So we think, well, how could that person be saved? But we don't know because that person could have trusted Christ. They could have heard the gospel in a good news club when they were a child. They could have heard it at at a... uh, 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 vacation Bible school, they could have heard it in Sunday school, and you just never know. Now, with some people, we have a pretty good likelihood that they probably never did hear the gospel or understand it, but you can't know for sure. I mean, I know I've got personal uh, acquaintances and friends that clearly understood the gospel and were clearly saved when they were young and when they were uh, teenagers, but later when they went to college, they got all confused, and it wasn't long before they gave up on Christianity altogether. And today, you wouldn't 
uh, know by what they say or what they believe or what they teach or what they uh, or how they live that they ever had a clue what uh, Christianity was all about. This idea that we're justified totally apart from works was recovered during the Protestant Reformation. And the first person to recover that was a theologian by the name of Martin Luther. And in his commentary on Galatians, Luther wrote, It is necessary that we should have imputation of righteousness, which we obtain through Christ by faith. That is the benchmark of the Protestant Reformation. Luther clearly came to understand that. He didn't really have it totally focused uh, on October 31st, 1517, when he nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the Church of Wittenberg. But as he continued to study the Word, it it not only became focused for him, but then he had a uh, protege uh, by the name of Melanchthon, who was really the uh, brilliant mind who systematized Luther's theology, uh, who helped him understand uh, the, the true grace of the gospel and of justification by faith alone. Luther went on to say that the doctrine of justification is this, that we are pronounced righteous and are saved solely by faith in Christ and without works. See, remember, this is exactly what I've been teaching, that justification is that we're declared righteous by the Supreme Court of Heaven. It has nothing to do with anything that we do. It has nothing to do with our character. It has nothing to do with our our sincerity. It has only to do with the fact that we possess the righteousness of Christ. At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father imputes or credits to each of us the righteousness of Christ so that when God the Father looks at us, he sees not our sin because that is covered, as it were, by the cloak of Christ's righteousness. So all he sees is Christ's righteousness, but underneath it, we're still the dirty, rotten, lousy sinner we always were. Okay, and, and, but we're declared righteous. It's a judicial declaration. Luther understood that. So did John Calvin. I mentioned this uh, several weeks ago. Calvin did it first. Later on, he got, was pressured, as others were, uh, in, in, during the Reformation by the response of the Roman Catholic Church in the Counter-Reformation that, well, if you're saved by grace, then there's no reason to keep, for you to be moral. So what is it to restrain all the peasants from being immoral and rebellious. You've got to have some emphasis on works. And so they brought in this idea that the way you, you, while you're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. And by that they meant that if you have true, genuine, saving faith, then it won't be alone. It will necessarily produce good works and then they would distort the uh, statement by Jesus in Matthew, by, your works, by their works you shall know them, and say, well, you can, if the works aren't there, then it wasn't the right kind of faith. So you have to have the right kind of faith. And, uh, and I've gone over the details there where the Bible never qualifies the word faith, never says you have to have genuine faith, true faith, real faith, sincere faith, or any other kind of faith. It's only faith in 
Christ, only believe in Jesus. It doesn't say sincerely believe, truly believe, strongly believe, consistently believe. It doesn't say any kind of L-Y believe. It is just believe, and that's it, and that's all that is necessary. Now, it wasn't long, though, before even among the Reformers, the doctrine of justification by faith got muddled. And I'm going to give you three examples from different uh, confessions of faith. That's what they called doctrinal statements back then. And the first comes from actually the next century, the middle of the 17th century, from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the standard doctrinal statement for Presbyterian churches. If you're Presbyterian, it's not, not modern, neo-Orthodox, quasi-liberal Presbyterians, but those who at least try to be biblical, then your standard is uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which states, those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ. Now, this is a test. Is that right? Is that wrong? No, it's not. It's Christ's righteousness that is imputed, not his obedience, not his satisfaction. That's propitiation. Propitiation is Godward. Christ satisfied the righteousness of God on the cross. It's not, it's not his righteousness that is imputed to us because why? 1 John 2, 2. He's the propitiation for not only for our sins, but for the whole world which means unbelievers. Westminster Confession of Faith was written by Presbyterians in England who believed in limited atonement. Christ died only for the elect. So uh, the obedience and satisfaction propitiations restricted only to the elect. So this is wrong. It is Christ's righteousness that's imputed, not his obedience or satisfaction. Then we have the Heidelberg Catechism. This is from the uh, German Reformed Calvinistic area in the uh, eastern part of, uh, uh, western part of Germany, rather. States, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Now, outside of the word satisfaction, that's not bad. It's uh, without any merit of my own. That's right. It's out of mere grace or pure grace. And God imputes to me the perfect righteousness and holiness. Holiness is usually thought of as a combination of his justice and his righteousness. The righteousness and holiness of Christ, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. I, it's on the basis of faith alone. So that's not bad. Then there's the what's called the Solid Declaration of the Formula of Concord. This is the ultimate Lutheran confession of faith. It had two parts. Uh, the second part, the longest part, is called the Solid Declaration of the Formula of Concord in 1577. And Here's what it states. The word justify here means to declare righteous and free from sins and to absolve one from eternal punishment for the sake of Christ's righteousness, 
which is imputed by God to faith. Still a little fuzzy. Uh, it, justified doesn't mean that we're free from sin. We're still a sinner. That's they, you know, the language has changed since then. They might have uh, meant something a little different, but it, they get the idea right to declare righteous. And that's the key. It's not just, it's not free from sin. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness has to do with the removal of sin. And justification is based on imputation, which is the addition of positive righteousness. So forgiveness isn't part of justification. It's important. But justification has to do with the receiving the positive righteousness that is the basis for the declaration of our uh, justification. Now, the doctrine of justification, as you know, is still under attack. And a recent twist on this attack has come by from a uh, well-known, well-educated, erudite, articulate uh, Anglican bishop by the name of N.T. Wright. And this is what N.T. Wright says. Now, I'm bringing this in, as I've said before, because there are people in this congregation who have friends and relatives who go to some doctrinal churches that where the pastors have been seduced by the error and the heresy of N.T. Wright. And so we have to be prepared to understand what it is that he is teaching. He is a preterist, which means that he believes that all of the prophecy in the New Testament, except for Revelation 20, 21, and 22, was fulfilled in A.D. 70 when Jesus returned in the clouds of judgment. Okay, that's the preterist position. So we're in the millennium. I'm in the ghetto of the millennium, I guess, but uh, we're in the millennium according to preterism. So he's a preterist. It obliterates the distinction between Israel and the church and it, of course, rejects dispensationalism, and lo and behold, he also has an obscure view of justification, which obliterates the legal forensic doctrine from Luther and substitutes works in its place. See what he says in, his, in one of his books or one of his articles that he wrote in a, in a symposium called Justification in Perspective. He said, Justification is on the basis of the entire life a person has led in the power of the Spirit. That is, it occurs on the basis of works in Paul's redefined sense. See, he plays this fast and loose game. You know, it's the old shell game, where's the P? Which shell is it under? And the guy's got it in his back pocket somewhere. But he's, he's, he redefines a lot of terms. When Paul, when Paul says that we're not justified from the works of the law, he's talking about any area of uh, the, the entirety of the Mosaic law and trying to gain God's uh, approval by being obedient to the law. Whereas N.T. Wright and uh, those influenced by him, are, they, they're called the new perspectives on Paul, and they believe that uh, when Paul said works of the law, he really meant the the ritual of the law, not the whole law, not the morality of the law. So uh, Jews can be saved by being moral and following the moral part of the law. 
So he says, uh, justifications on the basis of the entire life, a person is led in the power of the Spirit. That is, it occurs on the basis of works in Paul's redefined sense, and it occurs in the present as an anticipation of that future verdict. See, you're not, the verdict of justification doesn't come until after our life is long gone. He goes on to say justification is not, quote, how someone becomes a Christian. It is God's declaration about the person who has just become a Christian. Because you become a Christian by works. Sounds awfully Roman Catholic, doesn't it? But see, that's the problem. He's, he, it's interesting because he's taken lordship salvation to the next step. And guess who's doing the most work to refute this guy? The lordship salvation people. It's interesting to watch. But see, there's N.T. Wright, and what he has done is just to, should have his picture up there like that because he's turned the gospel upside down. And so people are, are dreadfully confused uh, about the gospel. Well, last time we were in Romans 4, I covered down to about verse um, um, 9. I briefly went over 9, 10, and 11, 9, 9 through 12, and I want to cover that a little more tonight. In Romans 4.10, Paul said in reference to the imputation of Abraham's uh, righteousness, he said, but how is it accounted or how is it imputed while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? In other words, when did this occur in Abraham's life? The Jewish contention is that if you're circumcised according to the law, then you're in. That's the key. And, um, but what about Abraham? Was he circumcised or uncircumcised when, when he was justified? He makes it clear that it wasn't while he was circumcised, it was while he was uncircumcised. And Paul then goes on to say, and he received the sign of circumcision, which was not the sign of the Mosaic law, but it was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Every covenant has a sign. The, um, Noahic covenant has a sign of the rainbow. The Abrahamic covenant has a sign of circumcision. The, uh, Mosaic Covenant has a sign of the Sabbath. So Paul says he received the sign of circumcision to seal the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles alike, the father of all those who believe, not believe and are circumcised, not believed and follow the law, but all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So everyone has the opportunity to receive this gift, this imputation of righteousness. And then in 4.12 he says, And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, that would be Jews, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Now, I want to review this for you because this is important. Here, Paul talks about the steps of faith which Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Steps of faith indicates a process, but there's a point at which those steps begin. And the action of Genesis 15, 6 references the first action when Abraham believed God. And at that time, it was accounted or imputed to him as righteousness. As a result of that, Abraham is regenerated. 
and he then begins to grow, and he grows through various tests of faith. This is what James is referring to in James 1, 2 through 4, that, that we are to count it all joy when we encounter various tests, uh, various uh, tests because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and endurance will have its maturing result. So we need to understand what this concept of steps of faith refers to with Abraham. So let's turn back, and I want you to go back all the way to Genesis 12, the very beginning of the story of Abraham. Now, this is so important to understand this and just think our way through Abraham's life. When I taught through Genesis several years ago, I identified 14 tests that Abraham went through. 14 tests. Not long ago, I was reading a, a, a Jewish commentary, a kind of an anthology of the various uh, Jewish rabbinical writings and commentaries and studies on Genesis, and rabbis came up with 10 tests. They weren't quite the same, but I think there are 14 because you, they're all related to specific commandments related to promises that, Ab- that God had for Abraham. The issue for him was whether or not he was going to trust God and obey God or not. Now, Genesis 15, 6 establishes the fact that there is this one time, because of that perfect tense verb that refers to an event that's been completed in the past with ongoing results. So at that event in the past, sometime when before he ever left his, his native Ur of the Chaldees, he believed God and God in a moment in time, imputed to him the righteousness and declared him justified. Because he's already justified and is a growing, maturing believer, God then began to test Abraham, in some, and with Abraham there were some special ways. The first test that we know of that's recorded in Genesis occurs in Genesis 12.1. God says to Abraham, Leklaka, get out of your country. Leave, go. Leave everything behind. That's his first test. Is Abraham going to be able to trust God and leave everything behind? Leave all of his family, all of his relatives, all of his, everything that's familiar, get completely outside of his comfort zone and just take off to where God's going to, to lead him, not knowing where that's going to be. So that is the first test. And God gives with this command a promise that he's going to take him to a land that he will show him. That's the first part of the promise, the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and bless you. So the second part is his descendants, or the key word that Moses uses all the way through Genesis is the word seed, 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 seed that the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And all those genealogies trace the seed line, and it ends with Jesus, as we'll see. So uh, the, the first test is get out, leave, go, depart. And then he gives them the pr- promise of the Abrahamic covenant here. This just foreshadows the covenant. There's the promise of the land, the promise of uh, descendants or seed, and the promise of blessing, and these are the three components of the Abrahamic covenant. 
They all become developed later on in additional covenants, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the, and the new covenant. But what is important here is to focus on these first two, the land promise and the seed promise. Blessing promise plays a big part of this too, but the, the primary foundation is God says, I'm giving you this land and I'm going to give you seed from your own loins. Now, Abraham, are you really going to believe me? Abraham's already saved. He's already justified. This has to do with his spiritual growth. So you, the question I asked initially, is justification the cause or the result of faith, of, our, of these tests of faith? It's the cause. First, we're justified, and then God begins to work in our life to mature us and to, to test us. So the first test for Abraham was to, was to get out. And then there's a reiteration of the promise in verse 7. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram again. This time Abram has left home. He's gone up to Haran, up in northern Syria for a little while. Finally, he's made it to the promised land. And as he is uh, on a recon mission through the uh, promised land, checking everything out, he comes to Shechem, which is about in the middle of the land, uh, now in the uh, area of Samaria, just north of Jerusalem, about about uh, 50 miles or so. And at Shechem, he builds an altar to God, and God makes a promise to him there. He says, to your descendants, to your seed, I will give this land. Ah, but with the promise comes a test, and the test is the famine test, which comes in in verse 10. There's a famine in the what? In the land, the land that God gave to promised to give to Abraham. And so the issue now is a test of sustenance. Are we really going to trust God when the going gets bad? Are we going to trust God when our experience tells us that we really need to go somewhere else uh, to find the basic uh, uh, things to sustain life, especially water there, and food? There's a famine in the land, and so Abraham fails this test. The first test he partially passed. He took Lot with him. He was to leave everybody. He he takes Lot with him, actually takes his father with him, and they have to stop off at a a while in Haran before his father dies, and then he's able. Then he finally comes into the land, but he didn't leave everybody behind. So he gets a, you know, all these tests are pass or fail. You don't get graded A, B, C, D, F. It's pass or fail, and he gets a P minus. He passes mostly, but not fully. On this test, he fails miserably, and so he um, goes down to Egypt instead of trusting God to sustain him in the land. He goes down to Egypt. And uh, then he goes into a little operation deception where he uh, tells the Pharaoh that Sarah's really my sister and uh, I don't mind if you take her into your harem. The problem here is that this puts her in a position where if she is bedded by the Pharaoh, then it threatens the seed from Abraham's loin. So it's a test, always a test related to the seed promise. Uh, Chapter 13, we have a third test. The third test is a test of personal conflict. It's a people test. Uh, there's a test of grace orientation. Now Abraham is back in the land, and now he's with Lot, and God is blessing them, and they're prospering them, and uh, Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen are fighting. There doesn't seem to be enough room for both of them in the land, and so it's a test as to how Abraham is going to handle this in relationship uh, to Lot. Is he going to be gracious to Lot 
or is he going to be selfish? He's got to trust God that God's promised him the land so he can be generous with Lot. And he says, Lot, you take your pick first, and uh, I'll take what's left over because he just puts it in the Lord's hands that God's going to fulfill the promise, and it's not up to me to manipulate the circumstances. Afterward, God rest- he passes the test, and God restates the promise in verse 15, for all the land, God said to Abram, which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. So he passes the third test. Then we have the fourth test, which is a test of trusting God for prote- protection and to fulfill his responsibilities as the uh, kings of the east uh, come in and attack. We have the kings of uh, Shiner and El- uh, uh, Elisar and Elam and uh, Tidal, the king of the, uh, of the nations, come in, these four kings uh, in their alliance, they come in, they attack, and they're just uh, pillaging their way through uh, the Middle East. And they come to Sodom and Gomorrah, and they capture uh, a lot of slaves and and a lot of plunder, and then they head north. And so Abraham gets all of his uh, uh, servants together, about 150, and he goes after this army. And he's got to trust God that God will give him the victory. And he has victory, and he rescues a lot, and rescues and recovers a lot of the plunder, and so he passes the test. He tests God to he relies upon God for protection. Then comes the fifth test. The fifth test has to do with how's he going to handle this prosperity. You know, now that he has won, is he just going to sit back and say, "Well, look at all this great booty that I've gotten. Uh, I've got I've become much wealthier." And I've got all these people. I can have a lot of slaves. But instead of focusing on himself, he focuses on God, and he shows grace and gratitude. He is gracious towards those he has rescued. Uh, He doesn't keep all the booty for himself. He gives uh, 10% of it to the Lord as an offering of gratitude and gives that through Melchizedek, who is the king priest of Salem. Then in chapter... um, So that's the uh, fifth test, the prosperity or the victory test, which he passes. So he's he's passed uh, three and a half of these and blown one and a half. Then in chapter 15, we get the sixth test. And the sixth test comes as a result of a command in verse 1, Abraham, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. Your exceedingly great reward. Reward, remember, has to do with inheritance. So he's talking not about salvation, which is a free gift, but a reward for service. There's a difference between those two. And so he says, Abraham, I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And this is the context of our promise in 15.6. Abraham says, well, are you going to do this through uh, Eliezer, my servant? And God says, no, I'm going to do it through your own, uh, through your own loins. He'll be a descendant from your own body. So, uh, the sixth test is don't be afraid, and now Abraham is going to trust God. He has already trusted God in the past, the basis for justification, and he will continue to trust God. And so God is going to uh, grant him a covenant. But look at verse 8. Abraham says to God, Lord God, how will I know that I'm going to inherit it? Notice I said at the beginning, God says, I'm your great reward. And then the terminology uh, shifts in verse 7 where the Lord says, I'm giving you this land to inherit it. Once again, now we're back to the land promise. The other promises had to do with the seed, protecting the seed. Now it's the land. They go back and forth between these these two major parts of the Abrahamic covenant. 
And so Abram says, how do I know I'm going to inherit it? And God doesn't say, you stupid idiot, you asked a question. Sit down, shut up, and listen to Bible class. Doesn't say that. He gives him an answer. He makes a covenant with him. He gives him a contract, as it were, and it's a one-sided contract, a unilateral covenant. And so he lays the animals are laid out, uh, which is a standard procedure for this kind of serious uh, covenant. And they're they're uh, they're sacrificed. They're split in half. God tells Abram that he is going to bless him, but his descendants are going to be out of the land for a while. The land God promised them, but they'll, he'll bring them back eventually. And uh, when they come back, God will, will bless them. And while, they're, while he goes through the covenant ceremony, he has Abraham fall asleep. Normally, the two covenant partners walk through together. If you've ever bought a house, you go in to buy the house, you go to the mortgage company, and they give you a stack of contracts like this, and you have to sign your name 347 times. In that day, all you did was the two covenant partners walked between the halves of the sacrifices. That's, that's equal to signature. But God caused Abraham to fall asleep, and God walked through it because it's unilateral. God's going to guarantee the covenant. It's not conditioned upon Abraham. It is conditioned solely on God. And so in verse 18, uh, we read, On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given what? This is land, 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 all the way through here, in seed, seed, seed. He says, I'm, uh, I'm giving you your seed. Whenever you see the word descendants in the New King James, I don't know what the New American Standard says, but it's seed in the, uh, in the original. To your, to your seed, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So we get the boundaries. Now, chapter 16 gives us the, the next test. Uh, chapter 16 gives, you, gives the next test, which is, um, which is the seventh test, and it's the power of God test. Can God really bring life where there is death? Or another way to put it is, is God really more powerful than Viagra? I just figured 45 minutes into this, i got to get your attention and wake you up somehow. Abraham is an old man. He still ha- it's not time to have, have, this, have the son. He's about uh, 86 years old at this time, and um, he still hasn't been able to have a child. He is infertile. So is uh, Sarah. She's too old. And so the issue isn't just are they going to be able uh, to procreate, but are they going to be able to be fertile and have children? So is God more powerful? And the point I'm making, being a little funny with it, but the point I'm making is when we have a problem, do we really believe that God is more powerful than our human solutions, no matter what the human solution may be? We have great technology. We have great wealth. We have great material gain. And we have many different skills that as human beings we have uh, honed with great sophistication. But do we really believe that God and God alone is enough? And that's the issue with Abraham. Is God going to be able to do all that he needs to to change and renew Abraham's sexual organs and Sarah's sexual organs? I heard an OBGYN one time talk about everything that God needed to do in order so that, that, that 
uh, Sarah would be able to have a baby again. I mean, he had to you, uh, change the uterus and do all kinds of things. I just don't know all the technology, but it's amazing all the different things that had to be uh, renovated in both of them just so they could have a child again. And so God comes, and he's made this promise, but they get impatient. I know none of you ever get impatient with God, but they got impatient. And so Sarah comes up with plan B, which is Hagar, and we're still suffering from the consequences of plan B because she did get pregnant and had a son named Ishmael, and Abraham obviously failed that test. Test 8 comes in the next chapter. Test 8 is, God, you want me to cut off what? It's the test of circumcision. And so for somebody who is uh, 99 years of age, uh, this would be a test. Lord, I'm sort of attached to all my body parts. I don't care how useful they are or not. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant. And so God reiterates all of the promises again. He reminds Abraham of the covenant. He gives Abraham a new name. He's going to give Sarah a new name. Uh, He restates the promises of numerous descendants and the land. And then comes this test. Are you really going to trust me and have a little self-surgery here? Hmm. Ladies, talk to your husband about that. That's a test. Are you willing to do this? Some people think trusting God means folding your hands and just waiting on God passively. This is a great example to say trusting God not only means to believe what God says is true, but it entails doing something. And what it entails doing may not be what we want to do. It may not be something that's going to make us feel better. It may not be something that's going to make us happier. It may be something that is painful. It may be something that is difficult. It may be something that goes against our whole nature. But we're going to trust God and do what God says to do. So there's a passive side to faith, which is trusting God alone, and an active side, which is we're going to do what God says to do because God is faithful. And that's what's happening in all these tests. Abraham is learning that God made a promise, and the more impossible it seems that that promise can be fulfilled, the more Abraham has has to learn about trusting God. He realizes that God really can do what he says he will do, and he can trust him no matter what his experience tells him. And when you're 99 years old, I would assume your experience tells you that you're not going to have any babies. So he goes through this whole process, and this is why Sarah laughs uh, when she overhears what God has said, because she just doesn't believe it. She knows there's no way that body's going to have another a baby at all. And so she chuckles, so that's why they get the name Yitzhak, meaning laughter for, for the son. Now, Abraham, we're told in verse 24, is now 99 years old. It's been 13 years since the Ishmael-Hager disaster, and so now they have a, a 13-year-old to deal with in the house. We all know what that can be like. Chapter 18, we get another test. Chapter 18, we get actually two tests. The ninth test is a test of grace and humility. Three visitors show up, and one of them is is God, and the other two are angels. The one is the actually the angel of the Lord, probably the Lord Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity showing up here. 
And so it's a test of Abraham's graciousness to these, these visitors and his, a test of his belief because God tells him in verse 10, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Actually, I put the laughing of Sarah in the previous chapter. It's here. This is when she laughs, and Yitzhak, Isaac, gets his name. Then we have the uh, tenth test, which comes after this, which is, is Abraham just going to fold his hands and trust God when he finds out what God is getting ready to do, or as we say in Texas, God's fixing to do? Is Abraham just going to say, well, it's God's will? Or is he going to be gracious and show love for Lot and concern for Lot and intercede with the Lord for Lot? And this is just this is a phenomenal passage, and you don't hear a whole lot of discussion about it, but as Abraham learns that God is going to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the, of the plain and just completely uh, wipe them out and destroy everybody, uh, Abraham approaches the Lord and intercedes on their behalf, and he begins to set up a case uh, for what he is, he is going to do. And uh, so the Lord informs him, and Abraham begins to negotiate in verse 23. This is like prayer, sort of asking God questions. It says, Lord, are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous. Would you still spare it? Then he works down from, from 50 down to uh, 20 and down to 10. He's just seeing, you know, where's, where's the line of demarcation here? And as he's doing this, he makes a very important point at the end of verse 25. He says, in the midst of all this, he says, far be it, he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He recognizes God is just, and what God is going to do is going to be the right thing. He may not understand all the data that goes into God's decision or what God is doing. We look at a situation like this, and, and from human viewpoint, God goes in and completely annihilates all the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and, and cities here, and, and modern man looks at this and say, this is a horrible God. But this is a just God who's operating on the basis of his justice, and that is not incompatible with his love because God's love operates not only for the, vic- for the criminal but also for the victim. And the human race would be victimized if Sodom and Gomorrah were continued to uh, be allowed to survive and to spread their perversion. And so God's love for the human race means that he has got to annihilate the Sodomites. And so he does that. And Abraham understands this is justice because God is just and righteous. God will do the right thing at the right time. And we may not always understand all the things that go into that, but we can always rely on the fact that God is just and God is faithful. That's what Abraham is learning. And so the uh, tenth test is to test Abraham's concern for his enemies, which would be Lot. And then the eleventh test comes in chapter 20. This is the test, again, of protection of the seed. Abraham, again, is faced with a problem with, uh, uh, with, with, with water, and so he, um, he goes to seek uh, a little protection from Abimelech, 
one of the, uh, the king of the Philistines. And again, he he gets in the same kind of situation he was in with with uh, down in Egypt, and he says, "This woman's really my sister." Once again, the seed now is being threatened because if uh, Abimelech were to actually take Sarah in as his wife, then that would threaten the seed promise of God. And so God, of course, intervenes. Abraham failed this test. God intervenes. And all this shows that Ab- to Abraham that God really can do what he promised to do. And Abraham's got to, finally learning that God can, can actually fulfill his promises. When I claim a promise, I can trust that God will actually do it. And so in chapter 21, we learn that Sarah conceives and gives birth to Isaac. And then God, there's another test because Abraham, like a good daddy, wants to keep all the babies in the house, all the kids there. But Sarah and God both understand that Hagar and Ishmael have to go. And so uh, God tells Abraham, verse 12, uh, that he needs to let them go. Because the seed promise goes through Isaac, not Ishmael. And so Abraham obeys him and out go uh, uh, Hagar and Ishmael. So this is the 12th test, separation from Ishmael and Hagar. Then the 13th test is another people test. It's a conflict between his servants and Abimelech over water rights and the wells. And he has to, he deals with Abimelech in grace. Remember, part of what he was supposed to do was be a blessing to all. So he's going to be a blessing to Abimelech here. He passes this test. And then his final test comes in chapter 22 when God tells him to take his son, his only son, the seed, the one he waited for for so long, and to take him to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him, to kill him. And and Abraham believes God can bring him back to life. Now, we don't know how he learned that other than he brought his sexual reproduction ability back to life. He brought Sarah's sexual reproduction ability back to life, and God can bring life where there's death. And so Abraham doesn't bat an eye, and he packs his bags and gets uh, Isaac and the mule, and off they head to, to Moriah, which is believed to be where the Temple Mount is in, uh, in Jerusalem now. And there he uh, sets up everything to sacrifice Isaac. And Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that, uh, or Hebrews 11 tells us that, that he believed that God could bring him back from the dead. So he's, he's not going to commit murder because he's obeying God, and God's not going to... Uh, destroy the life of Isaac. He fully understands that. He passes this test with flying colors, and God stopped him at the last second. In verse 12, God said to him, Don't lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Which, in this, in this passage, fearing God often comes very close to being a synonym for trusting God. It, it adds an element of respect and awe and that is part of it, but it's it's it also a major part of the meaning of fearing God is trusting Him. I know that you fear God, you trust Him fully, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. 
So Abram went and took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. And this is the picture of what happens with Jesus Christ at the cross. He dies like that ram in our behalf so that his righteousness can be given to us. He takes upon himself our sin and pays the penalty for Adam's original sin and for all personal sins so that with the penalty paid, his righteousness is free to be uh, imputed to anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. And so verse, then we come to verse 12 of Romans 4, which says that the father of circumcision, that Abraham is the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, that is Jews, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So when he was uncircumcised, that refers to his justification, those who follow in Abraham's path. Now, I just want to close by briefly looking at a parallel passage in Galatians. Galatians was written before Romans. Galatians is sort of the Romans in Paul's early thought. And in Galatians 3.13, Paul starts off talking about the redemption, the objective payment of the price of the cross. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That's a substitutionary aspect. Cursed, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That, for the purpose, he died on the cross on or near Mount Moriah there in Jerusalem, for the purpose that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. What did God promise Abraham? That through you all nations would be blessed. That we might receive the promise, we might, as Christians might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Then verse 15, he says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet it is confirmed. No one annuls or adds to it. So in any covenant, once it's signed, you don't come along later and say, oh, well, I really want that interest rate to be a point lower. Well, you've got to come up with a whole new contract. You can't just change it because you want to. That's what Paul is saying here. No one annuls or adds to it. Verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Notice he says, he does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one. See, inspiration extends down to plurals and, sing, and uh, uh, singulars. And he doesn't, doesn't say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, Paul says, that the law, which was 430 years later, so the law is 430 years after Paul, after Abraham is justified. His justification didn't have anything to do with his circumcision, which was 15 years later, at least, uh, after the statement was made in Genesis 15, 6. It was probably 30 years later in terms of the actual uh, dis difference between the time he was first justified and uh, initially justified and saved and the time um, he was circumcised. And here... Paul says it's 430 years from Abraham to the giving of the law. So Abraham isn't justified by either circumcision or by the law. Therefore, it's got to be on some other basis. It's faith. He says the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham 
by promise. And this sets us up for what Paul says in the next verse in chapter 4. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness that comes from faith, the righteousness from faith. So we'll start with verse 13 next Thursday night. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study uh, through Abraham to be reminded of your faithfulness, that you will fulfill that which you have promised, and you are fully able to perform everything that you have promised so that you are fully trustworthy. You are completely faithful and that we can trust in you no matter what the circumstances may be. As Abraham learned, that, that he needed, your promise needed to be more real to him than whatever it was he was experiencing. And we need to learn the same lesson. You are faithful. Father, we pray that you would continue to teach us these things and that as we reflect upon what we've studied this evening, that God the Holy Spirit would use that to, to help us really understand and appreciate all that we have by faith alone in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.